1977, a well-known German theologian and pastor by the name of Helmut, Helmut Tillich made an extensive lecture tour in the United States. Later, he was asked what he observed uh, as the greatest defect among American Christians. He replied, they have an inadequate view of suffering. I don't think it's changed much over the years. When the Apostle Peter wrote this first letter contained in the New Testament, he wrote to a suffering people in Asia Minor. These were folks who had heard the gospel of grace, had believed in Jesus as the Christ, and having believed, they're now experiencing trials and difficulties a lot because of their faith in Christ. So how you deal with suffering is woven all through the pages of this letter. Uh, we saw it in chapters 1 and in chapter 2. Uh, we're going to see it in the text in chapter 3 today. We're going to see it in chapters 4 and 5. It's all over the place. In fact, we're going to spend one whole session in this book uh, with a message titled, Keep On in Suffering. Uh, suffice it to say, this is foremost in Peter's mind as he writes. Now he's encouraged and exhorted these believers we've seen in the first couple chapters to keep on in hope, to keep on in holiness, to keep on in godly conduct, and then last week to keep on in submission. And to these he's going to add today, keep on in good conscience. Uh, it's an appeal to the way in which we explain the hope that's within us. And then he appeals again in verse 21 of our text to a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ. And we'll take a look at that. But this appeal for good conscience is set in the context of a confusing, often misunderstood and misapplied passage that includes Jesus going somewhere to proclaim to the spirits in prison. And, and also a reference to baptism that saves. Wow, what potential landmines and quicksand we have in this passage. Uh, but I'm going to try to deal with it the best I can with the most clarity I can provide. But before we do that, let's back up at the beginning of the passage. Uh, Peter, remember, has just finished describing and dealing with three life situations with it which these believers found themselves, all living under an oppressive and brutal governing authority. And then he talked about slaves becoming believers and then living under the, the authority of an earthly master. And then he addressed converted wives who were living with unbelieving husbands who opposed their efforts to try to convert them. The principle and practice of submission represented the manner in which a Christian should live their lives before others such that it would bring glory to God and would be a testimony, a witness, before non-believers. Now Peter, it's like he pulls everything together that he said, and then he's now going to apply something in a broad way. So if you would turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to pick up this morning in the text at verse 8 of 1 Peter 3. Notice what Peter says. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. 
For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter says, finally, all of you, this is an all-inclusive exhortation here. It's instructions for everybody. Look at the list. Unity of mind. Suffering tends to pull people apart. But Peter says, hang together. Uh, be of the same mind. You know, you're in this as part of community. We talk a lot about community here at Knollwood because it's important. This theme of unity was a major one for the Apostle Paul as well. Just turn back just a few books to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. I want you to see this setting. Ephesians chapter 4. Paul's ready to make a transition from the first three chapters dealing with doctrinal matters, importance of faith, things we need to understand and believe. Now he's going to apply it all in chapters 4 to 6. This is the so what of all that he's just said. But he opens with this, verse uh, 1 of chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you were called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager, another good word that's used is being diligent, to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who's over all and through all and in all. Unity, really important thing. Second, he talks about sympathy. We should care for those who are experiencing difficulties in life, especially in suffering for one's faith. And so we need to be mindful of and prayerful of and, and supportive of brothers and sisters who are being persecuted for their faith. I think it also includes caring for the weaker brother or sister in faith. Paul deals with that in Romans 14 when he says the stronger brother or sister needs to go out of their way to be sympathetic to and concerned about the ones that are weaker in faith. And then Peter says brotherly love. This is interesting. Uh, Peter's already talked about loving one another with an agape love, God's love, but now it's like he comes back and says, but I want you to be sure that you have brotherly and sisterly affection for others as well. And then he says a tender heart. Suffering has a way of hardening one's heart, especially towards one's enemies, but also towards one's friends who wish to help. And so there's the need for believers to develop thick skin while maintaining a tender heart, particularly during hard times. And then Paul, or Peter says we need to have a humble mind. Paul writes about this as well. Look at this from Philippians. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, and the if that he uses in the Greek text means since, uh, if there's any encouragement in Christ, and there is, any comfort from love, and there is, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my mind by being, by joy, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests only, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus. And then he adds, finally, bless others. In the same way, to the same degree that you bless, you will be blessed. So bless. Don't, don't repay evil for evil. Don't revile as you've been reviled. Yeah, I think Peter seems to be reminding his readers of the words the Lord himself spoke, recorded in the Sermon on the Mount, when he said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then Peter adds this wonderful quote from Psalm 34 to underscore his point. David penned those words in the text, verses 10 through 12, uh, when, during a time when he was under great duress. He, he is actually in a time where he's forced to hide from King Saul, who was wanting to take his life, even though David had already been anointed by Samuel to be Saul's successor. But David entrusted himself to the care of God, and that's what he was talking about there. Well, Peter returns to an earlier emphasis that we've seen. Do good, he says, even if you suffer for it. Would you go back to the text again, 1 Peter 3? Start at verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Peter gives two exhortations. One's negative, the other's positive. First of all, he says, don't fear. Even if you're being troubled, even persecuted because of Jesus, do not fear those who would treat you in this way. Jesus himself told his disciples, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him, fear him who can destroy both the body and the soul in hell. Don't be afraid, but he says, honor Christ. Literally, he says, sanctify Christ. That is, set him apart, set him aside in your hearts as he himself is set apart. So honor him as Lord. Give him first place in your thinking, in your feeling, in your living. Now, our English translations give the feel here of a courtroom setting. You know, make a defense. Um, you know, apologetics, answer all the arguments and everything. But that, that's really an overreading of the meaning of Peter's words. What he's saying is to simply give an answer, give a response to the hope that is within you. It really answers the question why are you hopeful? Uh, you know, I think one of the amazing questions that's often asked of Christians undergoing difficult things in life is this. 
How can you be at peace? How can you even be joyful in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of trials and suffering? Listen, it doesn't mean that they, that they don't question. It doesn't mean that they don't wish things were different. It doesn't mean that they don't wish to be out from underneath the trial. But it is that even in the midst of suffering, they are entrusting themselves to a merciful God, a God who's promised to be with them, a God who has promised to ultimately deliver them, whether it's in life or in death. That's why Peter begins this letter by encouraging these suffering Christians to keep on keeping on. It's why he reminds us that their eternal destiny has already been declared and it is being protected by the power of God until that day. And so Peter says, be ready to share the answer for why there is hope in your life. And then he says, this is the manner in which you should do so. First, he says, with gentleness. You know, sometimes our response can be defensive or sharp. We sometimes speak too quickly out of the pain of our suffering and our circumstances. And then he says, we should do it with respect. In other words, don't, don't bludgeon people with the truth. I mean, our, our, our response shouldn't be intended as a put-down or as a holier-than-thou kind of response, but one that's respectful, one that is done with a gracious tone and tenor. Peter adds, we should do it with a good conscience. There's a sincerity of, of heart and, and words that's called for here. So even if those to whom you share your hope should ridicule you, you know, they should ridicule your ignorant faith, your silly confidence, they will ultimately, Peter says, be put to shame because of your response and your good conscience. You've acted honorably. You've acted responsibly and, and respectfully and humbly. How they respond is their business. They'll be the ones held responsible for that. Peter reminds them that should God permit a Christian to suffer for his sake while doing good, that's still better than doing evil. In the end, God will always reward doing good, even if misunderstood, even if ridiculed, even if persecuted. Peter goes on to give the rationale for why a Christian can have this attitude. Regardless of what they're experiencing, why a believer can behave in this way. Would you look in the text at verse 18? Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, once again, as in chapter 2, Jesus is held up as the example. He suffered unjustly. Listen, was there any justice in the suffering that Jesus endured? Here's the key. There was a greater good to come from the suffering that would result from what he went through. He, the righteous, suffered for the unrighteous. His suffering was for sin which was not his own. It was yours. It was mine. But the outcome, oh my goodness. How can we do justice to such a limited understanding of his death? 
God has revealed to us that the purpose of his suffering was that you and I might be brought to God. That is, that a relationship broken and shattered by sin might be restored in all its fullness. Peter says he was put to death in the flesh. He was truly human. He was truly divine. But he suffered a physical death. It was real. But death would not be his ultimate destiny. Uh, Peter, in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, declared, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And unlike the Jewish priests who had to offer sacrifices day after day, Jesus offered sacrifice, his body, once for all. His suffering and death were so complete, so perfect, so acceptable, that never again would sacrifice be needed. You see, if Jesus' suffering and death did not perfectly satisfy God's justice, there would be a further need for sacrifice. But there is nothing that remains to be done. That's why adding anything to Christ for salvation is to declare the insufficiency of his death. Jesus plus church, Jesus plus a good life, Jesus plus anything is a denial of the adequacy of his death. Okay, now for the hard part. One of the advantages of doing only topical sermons is that you can pick and choose what you talk about. I mean, you can just avoid anything. But if you're doing... Uh, an expository work through a book as we are, you need and certainly should deal with the whole text and do justice, even if it's a difficult and tricky uh, passage. Case in point, the rest of the passage this morning. <laughs> I am so tempted to follow the Old Testament example of Passover and just pass right over these verses, but I won't do it. There are two main things that Peter speaks about here. Uh, and that is this, who did Jesus go preach to and what did he say to them? And, and what's this about, uh, you know, Jesus talking about a baptism that saves? What do we do with those things? Sounds contradictory to the teaching of the New Testament. So let me read the passage. Yeah, we've got time. <laughs> let me read the passage and then we'll look at it. Verse 18 again. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers 
having been subjected to him. As they say in Norway, ufta. <laughs> the 16th century theologian, reformer Martin Luther wrote this about these verses. A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. I cannot understand, and I cannot explain it, and there's been no one who's explained it. Whether you're here, here this morning. <laughs> uh, before we dive in, let me say a few things about difficult passages, because there are some in your Bible. Have you noticed that? Um, first, we don't, we don't have to feel pressured to explain everything in the Bible. You know, this is where we have a dose of humility because we are dealing with finite minds with the infinite. And there are some things that, that, that we just aren't going to fully understand. And you know what? That's okay. That's okay. Take a deep breath. Second, uh, these passages should never become a proof text for some new or suspect doctrine. See, that's the problem. People go to these obscure passages, and then they pull it out, and then they just go hog wild and create some amazing thing. Any truth for an established doctrine is going to be found in various repeated passages in the Bible where Scripture interprets Scripture, and we can understand it better that way. Finally, we shouldn't be overly dogmatic on an obscure passage of Scripture particularly when you have differing biblical scholars who cannot agree on one interpretation. Um, so I think it calls for us to come to these passages with a heavy dose of humility. Um, now, I think there's something that helps us to understand the passage, and that, that there's a structure to this passage. So I want you to, to, want you to help me as, as we move in here. We're going to drill down a little bit, because I think this is really helpful for us to see that Peter's actually intentionally structured it in a certain way, and it goes like this. Jesus died in the flesh. Jesus was made alive in spirit. And Jesus has gone to heaven. That, that's the passage. That's the heart of it right there. This death, resurrection, glorification. It's interesting. It's a similar formula that, that the Apostle Paul uses in quoting, apparently, from an ancient hymn. In, in his letter of 1 Timothy, when he speaks of Jesus and says, who is manifested in flesh, justified in spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among nations, believed in the world, taken up in glory. A lot of parallel, isn't it? This whole paragraph, I believe, is about Jesus and as, as an example who suffered while doing no wrong. It began with his submission to suffering according to to his Father's will, and it ends with his glorification and everything being subject to him. What a reversal of outcome. You know, it, it's Paul's point when he wrote to the Philippians, I think, and speaking of Jesus, says, in being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This is the message of encouragement to these suffering Christians. It's an encouragement of hope that even though may, they may be suffering now, what awaits them is glory. 
And regardless of the struggle to understand these in-between verses, we surely must see that Peter's emphasis is on Jesus, from suffering to glory. And his example should comfort the suffering believer. Now, let's look at the difficult things Peter says. I, I have an idea why he includes these, but let me come back to that in a moment. Some people think Jesus went to hell after he was put into the grave. You know, that's probably where the statement comes in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell. They, they say that he went there to preach the gospel to those who died at the time of Noah. Uh, it was to give them a second chance at salvation. Uh, this is also the passage as a friend of mine had said, was, was, was quoted as reason for purgatory is, is what, what's going on here. Um, let's see what the text gives us. Let's begin with when and how. Now, many English translations, maybe the one you're reading this morning, uh, reads this. Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit with a capital S. However... <coughs> The Greek text of the New Testament does not indicate this to be the Holy Spirit, but rather human spirit, small s. And that makes sense because what Peter's doing is he's setting up a contrast between flesh and spirit. Uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense the way he writes for it to be flesh and Holy Spirit. So it's flesh and spirit. He put to death in flesh, made alive in spirit. Though Jesus in his earthly body died, he was raised a spiritual body. Look what Paul writes to first, in the first Corinthians, talking about the nature of resurrection. He says it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So if his proclamation to spirits in prison took place in his spiritual body, his resurrection body, then it could only have occurred after he was raised from the dead. When? We don't know. We're not told. We'd have to assume something there. But he preached to these spirits in his resurrection body. So who were these spirits and what did Jesus say to them? Well, here's what I think from my, from my study. I, I believe that they were fallen angels being kept in what is called in the New Testament Tartarus. Would you just turn over to the next letter, which is Peter's second letter in 2 Peter chapter 2 and notice what he says verse 4 for if God did not spare angels when they sinned but cast them into hell and if you might have a note saying the Greek word there is Tartarus and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment and then he just goes on there and talks about that um I think these are the same spirits or fallen angels that are referred to in the little letter of Jude in your New Testament, right before Revelation. Look at this. Jude says, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he's kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So track with me. I, Genesis 6 talks about some angels, the only thing we could imagine would be fallen angels, who sought to cohabit to marry humans. Why did they do that? I believe they did that to try to circumvent, to derail God's intent of ultimately through a human line bringing about a messiah. How would they do it? They would pollute the human race. 
And these are the angels, these are the people, the fallen angels to whom Jesus goes to preach in his resurrection body. So what does he say to them? There are two words in the Greek language of the New Testament that you might translate preach. One is used to meaning to preach the gospel, the message of Christ, the message of salvation. The other one simply means to proclaim. That's the word that Peter uses. He never uses the word to preach the gospel. There is no second chance at salvation taught in the New Testament. So what does Jesus proclaim to these angels? I think it's a proclamation of his victory over death and the grave. That those who sought to subvert uh, the plan of God failed, failed utterly. Uh, now, the example of Jesus and why he's putting it here is meant for suffering Christians to teach us how we ought to live, how we ought to respond to others, how, how we should be willing to suffer for Christ should God allow that. Christ, the sinless one, suffered unjustly, and yet he rose to victory. That will be our destiny when Jesus returns. Got that clarified, right? Good. In, in our dialogue time, we can talk some more, but I want to just say a few words about the rest of this passage. Baptism. What's going on there? Um, I'm really not sure why Peter included these verses. You know, it must have made sense to his readers when, when, when they got it, but it's difficult for me to see the relevance to the passage. The only thing that makes sense to me is connecting the ark and floodwaters with death and resurrection. And, and Peter's appeal to a good conscience is tied to Jesus' resurrection. Now, we know from all the teaching of the New Testament that water baptism is a symbol of identification of the believer with Jesus' death, burial, resurrection. Uh, here's a chart that I ran across, and, and maybe, maybe this is helpful. And so, you know, the symbol is water. It saved Noah in the flood. Noah and his family are saved. They're saved by, by being in the ark. Uh, baptism, then he pulls up, it saves you, not removal of dirt. It's the pledge of a good conscience. Those who are saved are believers. But it's through the resurrection of Christ that we also have life. So Peter says that Noah and his family were brought safely through the water. Now, they were actually saved because they were in the ark. But that's not Peter's point here. He, his, he says the water saved them. I think what he's saying is the waters buoyed up the ark uh, above the death-delivering power of the water. So what was death to all other humans became life to those eight people as it bore the ark above the waters. Bit confusing. Remember, don't don't make, try to make a major doctrinal position here from this obscure, difficult, head-scratching passage. Putting all that in your minds, I apologize. Let me tell you what you need to walk away from here with. <laughs> it's this: just as Jesus suffered and was made alive and is now in glory, believers who are identified with Jesus' sufferings will also be raised to new life and taken to glory in the end. That, that's, I think that's what we walk away from this passage with. And knowing that it leads me to the same conclusion that I left you with last week, three things that are the keys to living the Christian life in the midst of difficulties and suffering. Number one, trust God. He's worthy of trust. Keep trusting him. Two, do what is right. Keep doing the right thing. 
regardless of what's going on in your life. <laughs> and third, keep on keeping on. Hang in there. Hang in there. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for our Savior Jesus who died for us, who was made alive in spirit, and who was raised to glory. And that that same hope is ours, the same promise is ours, that we, even in the midst of difficult times, can have the hope of what you've given to us, an inheritance reserved in heaven, protected by the power of God. Would you encourage us through all those things, Father, that we might continue to trust you even in hard times. For Jesus' sake and in his name I pray, amen.